This morning I'll be reading from the letter of 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be all glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The end of all things is near. Neville Shute's 1957 novel, On the Beach, imagines how people act when the end of the world is near. He imagines a world where the northern hemisphere is completely destroyed by nuclear war and where people in Australia then have to cope with the reality that this radioactive fallout is heading their way. So shoot pictures different people, some who are in complete denial of the situation, others who are resigned to their fate, and who live out the rest of their lives trying to squeeze out every possible ounce of pleasure. The bachelor Osborne spends his time restoring and racing Ferraris. Moira Davidson copes with the end of all things by drinking and partying excessively. Members of a gentleman's club spend their time drinking up all the wine in the club's cellar while they debate whether the rabbits will survive longer than the humans. Shoot pictures a world where it was every person for themselves, trying to squeeze out as much pleasure as possible for their last days. Now, other novels and movies in this same apocalypse genre Imagine the end of all things as a time when people go to war, where people hoard food and medicine and guns in their small bunkers. And this last part at least sounds vaguely familiar after the last year we've had. When the end of all things is near, it feels natural for people to turn inwards, to look out for themselves, their own needs, their own wants, to look out for any final moments of pleasure they can eke out from those last days or weeks. When it comes to the end of all things, the author of 1 Peter seems to have in mind a contrast between this inward focus versus a kind of outward focus. But we have to zoom out from our passage this morning to get a bigger picture of what's going on behind this letter. Peter is describing what Dennis Edward refers to as the dynamic tension 
that Christians experience trying to live a life of joyful expectation of final salvation on one hand, while facing suffering on the other hand. Peter is convinced that for Christians, the end of all things was a reason for joyful expectation and not fear. He's writing to say that they should live in this joyful expectation. This is an expectation that Christ's return would mean the end of their own suffering and the redemption of their bodies. But he's writing about joy and hope to a people who are suffering for their faith. The kind of suffering they were experiencing was probably not this kind of big official empire-sanctioned persecution, so much as it was more social alienation, hurtful rumors and whispers, harsh treatment at work, or verbal abuse heaped on them as they walk through the marketplace. Their faith in Jesus put them at odds with the social and the religious norms of their neighborhoods. Their faith put them at odds with this kind of inward, self-serving, pleasure-seeking focus to life. Just prior to what I read this morning, Peter writes about evil desires, or more accurately, inordinate desires of the culture surrounding them. It's not so much about desiring bad things as it is about desiring badly or having the wrong priorities. And these inordinate desires are evidence of a selfish, inward kind of focus. Prior to what we read this morning, Peter reminds them, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Like living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. I mean, the living described here in First Peter is like a page straight out of Shute's apocalyptic novel. If Peter were writing in our time, maybe he'd picture a young group of guys hanging out of their car, honking and waving at their old buddy, flagging him down to say, come on, we're going over to Mac's house for a party. His parents are gone, you know what that means. Everyone's going to be there. I mean, lighten up. Don't be so stuck up. Just get in the car. Let's go have some fun. Peter says, that's what your old friends are like, and you played that game for long enough. Now if you tell them no thanks, they're going to act surprised, he says. After all, what's the harm, they'll tell you. The folks Peter is writing to know about being mocked and teased, being excluded from the kinds of parties and the get-togethers they used to go to. They don't fit in anymore with the norms of the culture where one might aspire to race Ferraris if there were such a thing back then, and to drink the wine cellar dry when the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near, we hear Peter say. Just about 2,000 years later, we might be tempted to say he was a little off in his prediction. And yet, we still live in this tension between expectation and suffering. That was kind of the whole point of Advent. To prepare our hearts not only to celebrate the first coming of Jesus, but also an expectation for the second coming of Jesus. The end of all things is near, we say every Advent. 
And when the world feels the weight of the future bearing down on it, we have come to expect people to act in a certain kind of way, to turn inward, to focus myopically on themselves, not in a healthy self-respect, self-care kind of way, but in a short-sighted, merely self-serving kind of way. I think this looks like that couple in BC who went to several Costco locations every day back in March, bought up all the Lysol wipes, loaded them up in their Ford pickup truck, stacks and stacks of disinfecting wipes, hundreds of cases stacked on pallets that they were then going to turn around and sell for four times the usual price. We're hustlers, they proudly told the reporters. Price gouging and hoarding have become part of our common language in the past year, a result of inward, selfish motivations, to be sure. And now it's not bad to grow a business. It's not bad to provide for your family, of course. But at least in the case of price gouging, it is that wrongly ordered desire to take advantage of a situation for your own personal gain. As we live in this tension between expectation and a certain degree of suffering, we too are tempted to live in self-serving ways, to having wrong, wrongly ordered desires, to turn inward, to focus on a kind of toxic material individualism. But I think Christians face a second kind of temptation. And it's to exclaim that the end of all things is near and then to use that as an excuse to disengage from the needs of our neighbors and from the unjust suffering of so many. It's to retreat to the safety of our personal devotions, to the safety of personal alone time with God, to turn our faith completely inward This is the temptation to look the other way when we see acts of racism or to only promise thoughts and prayers without interrogating our own assumptions or biases. As the old saying goes, Christians may become so heavenly-minded we are no earthly good. And again, of course, devotional time and a personal relationship with God is not a bad thing and it should be encouraged. But there is that temptation that personal piety would turn a believer only inward so that faith is about me and God. And just about everything else on earth grows strangely dim, as the old hymn says. Not just our own sufferings, as that hymn implies, but also the sufferings and the needs of our neighbors and of creation. The end of all things is near. Peter offers a necessary corrective to that inward focus, to those wrongly ordered desires of old and of our own day. As these believers live in the tension between joyful expectation of final salvation and their own suffering, God uses this tension to create a new third thing, and that's living hope. Living hope is the first and the central message of Peter's whole book. 
Peter starts out his letter with this exclamation in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Their hope was living because Christ lives. But it is living for the additional reason that it moves them. It is an active kind of hope. Peter has in mind this contrast between the inward focus fueled by wrongly ordered desires and an outward focus fueled by God's gift of living hope. God's gift of living hope results in a community that is focused outwards and formed by the following things, by prayer, love, hospitality, and the faithful use of their gifts to serve others. Now, living hope does not result in a naive or a disengaged community. The first clue to this is that they would be a community marked by prayer. And their prayers are marked by an alertness to the things going on around them and a sober mind. Be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray, he tells them. These people formed by living hope would not be inattentive to their neighbors. Neither would they be dreamy or idealistic. Rather, they would align their thoughts to God's thoughts through prayer. This community of living hope would also be marked by love, a kind of stretchy, covering love. Above all, love each other deeply, Peter tells them, because love covers over a multitude of sins. For love to cover sin does not mean that it conceals sin, but that love helps us to unlearn sin. One commentator puts it this way, Peter's assumption is that sin can indeed be blotted out by the love that Christ commanded and demonstrated. Love, like hope, is not this merely sentimental feeling. Love is transformative. It is active. This community of living hope would also be marked by hospitality given without grumbling. Hospitality was the concrete expression of their love. And it's not just the task of those people who are like really good cooks or really great hosts. It is the outworking of hope, prayer, and love in the entire congregation. The thing about hospitality, though, which Peter and these first century believers knew, is that it's possible you'll start to feel like your hospitality is being taken advantage of. Hospitality almost always requires more of us than is convenient or comfortable. Peter Davids imagines the first century church grumbling with complaints like, I don't know why we get all the travelers stopping in our town, or I wish those traveling missionaries would finally move on so we can stop taking care of them and feed our own families. These grumblings start when the food is running short when the house was getting too cramped, or when their hospitality drew unwanted attention and resulted in further persecution. God's gift of living hope will form a community that is not naive about hospitality. 
It is not all smiles and feasts and clinking wine glasses. Hospitality is the messy work of living hope. It is the messy work of putting prayer and love into action. Now, prayer, love, and hospitality are the God-given tasks to every person formed by living hope. But there's also room for each person to use whatever unique gifts they've been given to serve others. Whether it's to speak words of grace that God has offered them, or to serve in the strength that God provides. The end of all things is near. And instead of using that as an occasion to turn inward or to turn toward those wrongly ordered desires, Peter paints a picture instead of an outward-facing community characterized by hope and action, which looks like prayer, love, hospitality, and everyone putting their good gifts to use, serving other people. And this is not just a matter of making Christians look good or even of giving Christians purpose. This is about God's glory. This outward-facing community characterized by hope in action is how God will come to be praised in all things through Jesus Christ. Todd Bolsinger is a Christian author who's written about the role of prayer, hope, and hospitality in Christian communities. And he shares about how he met Howard and Alice when he was a university student. He's right at that age when a person's kind of out on their own for the first time. And they met at a church meeting. At the end of their first meeting, Howard and Alice prayed passionately and tenderly for a dozen or more people none of whom were part of their own family. So afterward, Todd went up to them and he said, I'm so deeply touched by the way you pray for these people. It's like the way I picture parents praying for their children. Todd recalls that his own family went through a lot of turmoil when he was a child. They had stopped being part of a church as well, so he'd not experienced that kind of earnest prayer, especially not for other people. Howard looked at Todd, having only met him for the first time, and he said, we'll pray for you every day too. What's your name? Howard and Alice put a picture of Todd on their refrigerator, and then when Todd got married, they put up a picture of his wife too and the kids, and they prayed for Todd's whole family until the day they died. Howard and Alice were alert to God's prompting to pray. And they were faithful in their love and their hospitality toward Todd and his whole family. These were small, faithful acts of hope. And they drew Todd into community and resulted in the praise and glory of God. God is still in the business of forming his people through living hope, through outward-facing hope in action. Now this is the first Sunday of the new year. And the last Sunday of Christmas tide. It's a beginning and it's an end. We've celebrated the first coming of Jesus even as we wait in expectation for his second coming. We've also said goodbye to a year that was full of suffering for so many people. And so as we sit in this space between joyful expectation and suffering, 
God is using that tension to create a different third thing in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's hope in action. Our hope is living because Christ lives. And it's only because of God's gift of living hope that we can expect God to form us more and more to be that kind of outward-facing community that Peter talks about. Living hope is hope in action. It is God forming people through prayer, through love, through hospitality, so that God will be praised in all things. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this gift of your word. Help us to believe what we've heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. Turn our hearts and lives outward to face each other and our neighbors with prayers, in love, and with acts of hospitality so that your name will be praised. Amen.